0: We have been laying the groundwork, so to speak, for a couple of weeks, uh, for what it means to study biblical theology. Well, I just got a call from the family. Oh boy. Okay. Yeah. Well, praying for you, Carol. <laughs> uh, we've been laying the groundwork for a couple of weeks, uh, for what it means to study biblical theology. What that means. Uh, what that looks like. Uh, and the, of course, the, the biblical theology as we have. Uh, sort of defined is sort of uh, it's an endeavor to gain a bird's eye view of the Bible's overarching story you're you're kind of zooming out and seeing how everything is connected how everything goes together and only as we've sort of tried to suggest and tried to reiterate only when that overarching story is kept in view will we be able to do theology in the correct way or as we've as we said in the very first series uh, first part of the series that will be we be able to rightly divide the word of truth. Uh, that, that comes from uh, 2 Timothy chapter number 2, verse 15, where Paul is telling Timothy to, yes, rightly divide. Literally, it can translate to, cut it, cut straight the word of God. And, and that's what we have stressed so far, that cutting straight the word of God is keeping at the forefront what God's word is meant to. To reveal what is meant to say, what is meant to show and say to us. And as we saw last time, uh, the story of the Bible, uh, the Bible, if it's an overarching story, the Bible's overarching story has a primary concern, and that primary concern is Christ alone. We took you to luke uh, luke chapter twenty four and you can turn there we're going to be going to some other places um, in a moment, but we'll just we'll we'll start here just as we're refreshing and kind of getting back into things luke chapter twenty four is such an important chapter, and as we saw, uh, Jesus reveals to these two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Uh, What the primary concern of the scriptures are. And that's where we get that amazing verse in verse number 27 where it says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, Jesus, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. What, is it, what does it mean to go back, uh, the subtitle, reading the Bible with an Emmaus perspective, what does that mean? That means it's sort of just coming out of this scene on the Emmaus road, looking at the scriptures through the lens of the fact that everything in it, everything in the scriptures is concerned with Christ. He's the concern, he's the point, so to speak, as we noted last time. The whole thing is about him. The whole thing has him at the center. He's the one we're supposed to see. Jesus, uh, I'll just read these verses again just because I think they're so crucial and powerful. Look at uh, verse 44 of the same chapter, Luke 24, where Jesus is now with the rest of the 12. And he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything... Written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Again, he's showing them that all of these familiar texts. All of these places that perhaps many of these disciples would have been familiar with from their days in the synagogue. He's showing them how to read them in a way that, that always has him as the concern, as the primary point, as the focus. And I think one of the things as we're going to keep moving on, jumping off from there, that's kind of uh, what we've been covering for the last uh, two weeks or so. Now, uh, what I want you to see is that this is not just the only time Jesus reveals this, of course. This is not the only time. This is the best place to go. But uh, I want you to also see, go to John chapter 5. John chapter 5 is a great text where Jesus is essentially doing the same thing, uh, setting the record straight, so to speak, and alluding to this idea that he, he, Jesus alone, is the center of this whole thing called the Bible, the scriptures itself. Look at verse number 37 of John chapter 5. Jesus is speaking to some Pharisees here. He's in this discussion with some Pharisees after a man was healed on the Sabbath. So they're, of course, upset and frustrated that he, would, that he would do such a thing on the Sabbath day. And in the midst of that conversation, in the midst of that back and forth, notice what he says, verse 37. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures, because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Amazing phrase. Amazing phrase and truth that Jesus has just revealed. And then jump down to verse 45 where he continues and closes out this uh, little scene here he says do not think that i will accuse do you not do not think that i will accuse you to the father there is one who accuses you moses on whom you have set your hope for if you believed moses you would believe me for he wrote of me but if you do not believe his writings how will you believe my words i love what jesus does here Two guys who are, so to speak, so in love with Moses. Again, remember, the Pharisees were that that group of religious leaders and people, so to speak, who were always set about to study and and memorize and keep in their minds the books of the law, the Pentateuch, the books of Moses. When you see that reference elsewhere in the New Testament, uh, the books of Moses or whatever, it's referring to the first five books of your Old Testament. And in many ways, those books that Moses has traditionally been credited with writing These are the ones that the Pharisees were so uh, indoctrinated by, so studious about knowing and examining and yes, putting to memory. And here Jesus is, is turning that against them. Again, I love how he says that. As he says in verse 45, I'm not going to accuse you. Your accuser is Moses himself, the guy that you're so infatuated by. Why? Because if you really knew how to study the books of Moses, you would know that I am the one that Moses was talking about. As he says, for Moses wrote of me. (laughs) See, Jesus is here setting the record straight. That God the Father has already, as he says back in verse number um, 37, God the Father has already borne witness. That means he has already given testimony about what God's own Son would do, about what the Christ would do. And how has he borne witness to this? By giving us his word. The word of God is the witness, it's the testimony To what God's Son would do and accomplish. But those in that day, they could not see it or make sense of it. Why couldn't they they see it? Why couldn't they make sense of it? It's the same, perhaps, reason that we could give as to why those two disciples on the road to Emmaus back in Luke 24 couldn't see it or couldn't make sense of it. Because they were not reading their Bible rightly, if you will. The Bible that they had. They were not rightly dividing it. They weren't cutting straight what the word of truth says and reveals. Instead, as Jesus here suggests in verse number 39, you're searching the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And that sounds like a confusing thing to harp on. Because we would say, yeah, they do have eternal life. But what Jesus is here saying, that you think that just within these words themselves, that you can find the truth, the nuggets, the little maxims, the little phrases. It's like going to the scriptures as if it's just a book of wisdom. Here are some things, let me apply them to my life, and this will give me eternal life. No, it's it's not just a book of pithy truths that you can just apply to your life or, or stick on bulletin boards or, or stick on your fridge. This book is meant to reveal him, as he says. You think that you, you search them because you think that in them you can gain, you can win, you can garner eternal life. But it's them, they, that bear witness about me. They are testifying about me. See, they were looking at the word of God all wrong. See, all these words of wisdom, these words of God, are nothing but God's own testimony of what the Son of God would do, would accomplish. They, as he says, bear witness about me. And that's what all of this is about. And that's why I think biblical theology is so important. Studying how to read the Bible, Studying why we read the Bible in that way. Learning how to keep all of this in focus. Again, that's what biblical theology is. It's keeping in focus that wherever you're turning in the Bible, it's there for a reason. What's the reason? It concerns Jesus. Yes, there's other concerns. There's there's other applications. There's other truths. But the primary truth, the fundamental truth, the truth that undergirds all of it, is the truth that is supposed to show us who Jesus is. That's what biblical theology is. It's the discipline to keep that truth that the scriptures talk about him, keep that at the forefront this is what it means, again, as we noted, to read the Bible from an Emmaus perspective. It's an, it's an effort to keep what Jesus reveals about the Bible front and center. Wherever we're examining, wherever we're interpreting, wherever we're applying, wherever we're studying the Bible, it's keeping that truth. What Jesus has just said here, and in Luke 24, that everything concerns him, that they that write about, that testify about me. That's what biblical theology is, and it's an attempt to... Understand and explain what the Bible says by keeping in mind that God's purpose, the Lord's purpose behind what it records and reveals, that's the great thing. It's, it's keeping that at the forefront. It's not just going to some uh, random uh, verse and just saying, this is just a great nugget of wisdom. No, it's there for a reason. It's there for a truer truth than that. All of, the, all of the wisdom of God's word, all of the history, all of the different songs of, of poetry, all of the different letters, all of that, they're all linked together in this one sort of beautiful revelation of Jesus Christ. I, I love what uh, this one writer says, uh, Lewis Allen where he says, Genesis to Revelation are 66 mirrors held up by the Spirit of God so that you and I might see Jesus. I've often used the phrase and it's not, it's, or the illustration. It's not unique to me. Other people way smarter than me have used this. But you can imagine God's word like a diamond, right? And when you hold it under the light, it's going to refract light everywhere. It's going to appear so dazzling? Is it going to appear so beautiful when you hold it under the light? And when you twist it, is it going to change? The diamond is not changing, but the way you can see all of its reflections, all of its beauty, all of the ways that it's cut, all of the sides. You know, when uh, when I was uh, buying Natalie's engagement ring uh, over 11 years ago now, um, when I was buying, well, actually it was longer than that, um, it was a, 12 years ago, yeah. Anyways, when I was buying her engagement ring, the thing that I learned that I didn't know before going into is that diamonds, uh, one of the most things, uh, you have to learn all of these different things about them, right? The, the, the carrots uh, and, and, the, and the clearness, the clarity, uh, the three C's, uh, the carrot of it, the clarity of it, but also the cut of it. And there's all kinds of cuts, like the princess cut and the diamond cut. I don't know. There's all these different cuts, the square cut and the circle. All these different ways that a single diamond can be cut and all the sides can make it appear dazzling in different ways under different lights. And that's just a silly way, but I think a good way to understand the Bible. That all of these books of the Bible form a diamond that show us the majesty, the beauty, the splendor of who Jesus is. And every time it's like, like you're turning a diamond, every book that you read is like turning the diamond. You get a new presentation of that beauty. You get a new look and a new understanding of how amazing that revelation is. That's what keeps us together. That's what keeps us focused. And this is, I think, what we are called to do when we are, any, wherever we're going, to read and understand the scriptures. I think a helpful way to think about this, and I didn't, I, I got this from a Nine Marks study. A Nine Marks is a is a parachurch ministry, but they call this a helpful way to think about why this is so important. So, if we were to ask the question. Why is biblical theology so important? Why why focus on John five and why focus on Luke twenty four and there's other passages we can go to where this same idea is presented to us. But why keep this? Why am I being so stubborn about this? And if you talk to people, they'll tell you that I'm pretty stubborn about this idea that the Bible is about Jesus and that's what we're supposed to be preaching. Why why am I so stubborn about this? Well, I would I would I really like this this illustration, the Empire Strikes Back problem. Well, <laughs> um, I'm going to spoil Empire Strikes Back, and if you haven't seen Star Wars Empire Strikes Back, well, I think that's on you, but it's all right. Um, I like Star Wars. I like these movies. I love just the, the fantasy of them, the sci-fi of them or whatever, but I, I think it's really helpful to think about this. So I'm going to land the plane, I promise. Um, what happens in Empire Strikes Back? We learn that Darth Vader... Is Luke Skywalker's father? Uh, That's the that's the great uh, sort of great revelation of Empire Strikes Back. That Darth Vader, the villain, the bad guy that you meet in the first, well, the fourth Star Wars. We'll call the first um, in in the first Star Wars in A New Hope. You learn about this bad guy, and he appears just pure evil. He's just ordering people to kill other people. He's just a bad guy. He's the ultimate bad guy. He appears fearsome and menacing and brooding. He's a guy that you love to hate. He's that type of bad guy. And Luke Skywalker is the hero that you love to rejoice for, that you love to cheer for, that you love to see win. And then in Empire Strikes Back, everything takes a turn when you realize that the bad guy is actually the good guy's dad. It changes everything. It changes the way that you've seen them interact. It changes all of, the, all of the different little details. You can go back again to the first movie and it should change how you watch it, right? Because this revelation is so important. It's the key to the whole thing. And it fundamentally alters the way we're supposed to look at uh, the motivations. Uh, It's it's supposed to change the way we're supposed to see uh, what they're saying and what they're not saying. All those sorts of things. It changes everything before and after it. The revelation that Darth Vader is Luke Skywalker's dad changes everything before and after. And it would be silly, wouldn't it? It would be so silly. If you tried to sit down and watch Star Wars and be like, I'm not, gonna pre- I'm not going to look at this as if Darth Vader is Luke's dad. You're going to just say, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to pretend as if that's true or anything like that. That would be silly because that's sort of the point of the whole thing. If you were to do that, they would be pretty ignorant and it would be pretty irresponsible. And that's just a silly way of saying that the same is true when it comes to God In his word, because at the heart of God's word is what? The revelation of God's son. He's at the heart of this whole thing. And to ignore that fact and to pretend that that's not the point of everything is to totally misunderstand and misconstrue everything that came before and everything that goes after. It's exactly like an Empire Strikes Back. To pretend that that, di- that scene didn't exist, to pretend that that truth wasn't revealed, is to totally be blind to what this whole story is about. And the same is true with God's Word. To pretend the fact that Jesus didn't reveal to us what the whole thing is about is to miss what the whole thing is about. Jesus is God's Son, and He reveals this over and over again through healings and through miracles. And then, of course, most definitively, he confirms that he's the Son of God through his death and resurrection. And that's the revelation that changes everything. And to try to understand the Bible apart from that revelation, as Jesus says, is foolish. Go back with me to Luke 24. Remember what he says to those two uh, disciples on the road to Emmaus? Because they had read their Bible wrongly. They were so uh, disheartened and discouraged. Look at verse 25. What does Jesus say? He doesn't mince words to them. Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. What does foolish there mean? Basically, it means senseless or unthinkable. And you get the picture. For Jesus, it was unthinkably foolish. To try and make sense of the Bible without him at the center of it. Without him as the focal point. You see, he he was so concerned with these two disciples, but he was concerned primarily with the fact that they had missed the point. They didn't take into consideration what was supposed to be the, the true revelation of this whole thing. That he's the center. He is the one this whole thing is about. And therefore, no matter what genre of book you are studying, reading, trying to uh, dive into, Christ will always be in the background or in the foreground. And I think this is really critical. Um, uh, Your Bible is made up of different literary genres. This is a thing that I think we have to keep in mind, that not every single book of the Bible is of the same sort of literary genre. Just like um, when you, on your bookshelf at home, you might have an encyclopedia, you might have a biography, you might have a mystery novel, you might have a romance novel, you might have um, a fiction book, you might have a non-fiction book. All of these different types of books are, are of different genres, and you can't read you can't read a mystery novel the same way that you read a newspaper. You're not going to go into it with the same sort of uh, ways of reading that particular book. You're not going to read a biography the same way you're going to read, you know, let's say, an instruction manual for your new piece of furniture. It's Different literary genres require different ways that you interpret them. They require different literary uh, sort of ways to understand what the book is trying to say. And, and I think that's really important for us to keep in mind. Because when we study the Bible, we have to keep the same thing in mind. When we a, a, a similar discipline has to be formed in us, because the Bible is not comprised of one genre, but a variety of genres. Just for instance, you have historical narrative in the books of First and Second Kings, and First and Second Chronicles, and First and Second Samuel. Then you have uh, you have polemic letters, and by that I mean it's 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 a letter that calls people out. For things that they've done wrong, First Corinthians is a good example. Or you have a pastoral letter where Paul is coming to the side of someone, much like um, much like First and Second Timothy or Philippians, or even a book like First Peter. These are pastoral letters. Or you have prophetic discourse, like Amos or Obadiah or Jonah. Or you have poetry like in the book of Psalms, or like a lot of instances in the book of Isaiah. Not to mention you have another genre called the parables, which is all over the Gospels. You see, all of these Uh, different books of the Bible require different ways that we approach them to interpret them and to understand them. The same way that you would interpret a a historical narrative is not the same way that you're going to interpret a a, a book of poetry. They're going to have different nuances. They're going to have different little details in them. They're going to have different ways that they're using terms or using uh, imagery or using words and phrases. But the cool thing is that they all have one point. I think it's really cool to think about this, the fact that there's all these different genres in the Bible, because I think it just, for me, it reminds me of the fact that the Bible is definitely not boring. The Bible is not boring. Instead, God, what has God chosen to do? God has chosen to implement a a, a, a rainbow, if you will, of... of of genres of literature in order to what? To paint a wonderful, elaborate picture of who his son Jesus is, who the Redeemer is. And he uses all these different literary genres to do it, to show us, to to paint this wonderful picture. So the point of all this is, is that when you get to any book of the Bible, wherever you are, one of the first things you should ask is what kind of book is it? What kind of genre is it? Are you in history or poetry or is it a letter? Because the difference is that while your bookshelf has, a, has you know, a slew of books that perhaps are of all these different genres and there's nothing that ties them together, in God's Word, each book of the Bible has a divinely inspired thread that ties them all together. And that thread, of course, is Christ. God's Word is... Is a wonderful tapestry of genres and and styles of literature, and they're all woven together by the thread of Christ. And this will aid the way we interpret the Bible, because there is an overarching story. There is an overarching interpretation and an application that God has baked, he's cooked into every text of Scripture. There's something that God wants us to see. As we said last time, and I think it's important to stress again, God wants to be known. The Bible, so often we think about it as some sort of like, you know, Da Vinci code. That we have to like piece together this this super secret code that we're all like Nicolas Cage in National Treasure, figuring out this super secret thing. God wants to be known by his people. By you and by me. (laughs) And he's made it very apparent that the more we invest and immerse ourselves in his word, the more of himself we will know and come to discern. So what this means is, if there's an overarching interpretation or application that God has baked into all of scripture, this means that that our surface-level explanations are not the primary ones. They're not the truest ones. They don't weigh the most, so to speak. Nor should they feature, as we could say, the predominant thing that the church receives uh, when they go to church on Sundays. The truest and deepest application of God's word is the one that always brings us back to the truest and deepest reason why we have the Bible in the first place. You see, what we're going to do is get to another one of my hobby horses, which is preaching. The truest and deepest application of, of whenever and wherever we are in God's word should always bring us back to the truest and deepest concern of the word. And again, what's the primary concern of God's word? Christ. It's not just a Sunday school answer to say that the Bible is about Jesus. That's really what it's all about. The Bible, I like, I like this long quote, I'll just read it for you here. The Bible is about Jesus, front to back, page to page. In Genesis 1-1 to Revelation twenty two twenty one. the written word of God is primarily and essentially about the saving revelation of the divine word of God everything the bible teaches whether theological or practical and everywhere it teaches whether historical or poetical or applicational or prophetic is meant to draw us closer to christ seeing him with more clarity and loving him with more of our affections the bible is about jesus that's from jared wilson you see therefore If we want to rightly divide the word of truth, if we want to cut the Bible straight, as we've used that phrase before already, then we will always cut it so that Christ is exalted. If we're cutting the Bible rightly, if we're cutting it straightly, then that means we're always going to go to the truest and deepest concern. We're always going to go to the truest and deepest application. We're always going to go to the primary thing that the Bible is trying to tell us. And it's always about Christ. It's not about us. And I think this is what, the, what this means then is that all our sermons ought to be concerned with what the Bible is concerned about. And again, what is the Bible concerned about? The Bible's concerned about Christ. And again, there will be certainly... There's going to be other things, other concerns that we come across, other things that ought to get and deserve our attention as we read and as we study. But all of those other concerns, all of those other things, they're all subsidiary uh, to the primary concern. And it's always Christ himself. The secondary truths should never eclipse the primary truth, again, which is truth incarnate. It's Jesus The Savior, the Redeemer, the Messiah, the true one, the just one, the pure one, the holy one, the gracious one. The one who has come down to take our sins off of our shoulders. Everywhere you go in God's word, this is what we ought to see. I love this. I couldn't help but include this, and this is longer, but like, whoa, that's a lot of text. (laughs) But I couldn't help but include this. This is from one of my favorite preachers of the 19th century, Alexander McLaren. He says this, quote, Christ, the Son of God, is the center of Scripture. The book is a unity because there is driven right through it like a core of gold, either in the way of prophecy and onward-looking anticipation or in the way of history and grateful retrospect, the reference to the one name that is above every name, the name of the Christ the Son of God. It is not meant to wrangle over. It is not meant to be read as an interesting product of the religious consciousness. It is not meant to be admired as all that remains of the literature of a nation that had a genius for religion, but it is to be taken as being God's great word to the world. The record of the revelation he has given to us in his Son, the eternal word, is the theme of all the written word. I love that. The theme of the word is the word incarnate, the word made flesh. That's what this whole word that we have in front of us is about. It's about God's word. Who is Christ? And I love the fact that both Jared Wilson, who is writing in the 21st century, and Alexander McLaren, writing in the 19th century, are saying the same things. And on, you could go back throughout all the centuries that the church has or should have always believed this one fundamental truth that this thing that we call the Bible has a point, and that point is Jesus. It has a theme, and that theme is redemption, it has a story. And that story is how you and I are saved from our sins. How are we saved from our sins? Because Jesus took them away. Once you get away from that, I think you've already lost. Once you've gotten away from that theme, you've, you've missed the mark. To go back to what we talked about in 2 Timothy chapter 2, remember how Paul called out those two teachers, Hymenaeus and Alexander, for what? For teaching a gangrene sort of gospel. <laughs> a gospel that's just infectious. It has no health to it, has no life to it, has no substance. It's an infection. You're actually infecting people, you're not making them whole. You're actually infecting them. If you get away from this thing that uh, that Paul told to Timothy, that Jesus told to these disciples, that was everywhere, the foundation of the church, you've lost. You're making it so much easier for others to make shipwreck of their faith. And eventually, too, you'll either skip parts of the Bible because they're too difficult... Or you'll resort to interpretations that will distort this theme of the Bible altogether. And again, this is why we need biblical theology. Because it keeps us centered on what the Bible is centered on. God's word, you see, is divinely, as we've said for the last couple weeks, divinely inspired and preserved. Why? In order to confront us with the type of God we have. And what type of God do we have? We have a God who decided from before the foundations of the world that he would demonstrate his glory. How? By setting his glory aside in order to take on our sin and put it to death. And that he would rise from that death in the glory of his resurrection in order that you and I might be partakers of that life, of that resurrection. You see, yes, the whole Bible, some people get so angsty about this. And when we talk about the Bible is about redemption, they want to say, like, the Bible is actually about God's glory. And I want to say, they're not mutually exclusive. The Bible is about redemption. Because that's the chief way that God has glorified himself. That's the chief way that God has chosen to bring glory to his name by sending his son into the world to die for it. What an awesome truth we have. And what an awesome uh, revelation that we have in front of us. It's a revelation that's like a diamond. The more you turn it, the more dazzling it gets. The more you flip through it, the more dazzling it gets. And there's always one truth. There's always one point at the center of it all. And that point is Christ. He is the reason why we are here. And he's the reason why we have this Bible in the first place. And what a, what, a wonder, what, a, what a wonderful thing it is that we get to glean for our entire lives just what it means that Jesus is the revelation of God the Father. That's what we're going to be diving into in the next several weeks. And I hope you'll stick with us as we continue in this study through biblical theology.